And now, like a slow shark circling its prey, we get to the core of modern subjectivism, relativism, and postmodernism. We are talking one uh, René Descartes. So he was born right at the end of the 16th century, March 31st, 1596, in La Haye-en-Touraine, a small town right in the middle of France. And actually, they've renamed themselves now after him <laughs> because basically nobody else famous came from Le Haye-en-Touraine. He had two elder siblings. His mother, Jean Brochard, died, well, actually was within his first year of life. Now, his father, Joachim, was a, a, a lawyer, a council member in the provincial government, uh, provincial parliament, and not much of a fan of raising children himself. So when his wife died, when Descartes' mother died, his father sent the kids to live with their maternal grandmother, and they remained there during the next few years, and even after Joachim remarried a few years later, they continued to stay with their maternal grandmother. And he did send, send René at the age of end to uh, at the age of eight to a boarding school at the Jesuit College of Henri Cat Henri the Fourth in La Fleche, and he stayed there for seven years. So of course, quite a uh, quite a lengthy period of time from the age of eight to fifteen, and this was just a few miles to the north. So. There, he did the usual course of studies involving young gentlemen of the time. Five or six years of grammar school. This included Greek and Latin grammar, studying the classical poets and, of course, Cicero. And then he did three years additional of the philosophy curriculum of the time. And since it was a Jesuit institution, they followed Aristotle very closely. They did, of course, the Aristotelian divisions of logic, morals, physics, metaphysics, and uh, heavy emphasis, at least in the last three years, of mathematics as a whole. And, of course, Descartes was fairly well known as a mathematician. So this school focused a lot on Aristotle, but Aristotle himself is a window or a gateway to other philosophers, because when you read Aristotle, he constantly criticizes or discusses at least the positions of people who came before him or others of his contemporaries. So if you combine the sort of split prism entry into Aristotle leading to other philosophers as well as reading Cicero, then we have a fairly good idea that Descartes would have understood or at least been exposed to the arguments of the ancient atomists, uh, the Stoics, uh, Plato, and he would have maybe not studied directly but certainly have heard of the skeptics or the radical skeptics, which is pretty important given what he worked on later. And La Flèche was, the school, was working on understanding the new scientific advancement. So in 1610, Galileo discovered that there were moons orbiting Jupiter, I mean, through his telescope, I assume, and that was known uh, in the school. And so although it was kind of scholastic, as we talked about in the past, and really focused heavily on Aristotle, he would have been exposed to other aspects of philosophy, both theoretical, natural, slash scientific as well. So, in a book he wrote much later in 1637 called Discourse, he said, when he left school, quote, I found myself beset by so many 
doubts and errors that I came to think I had gained nothing from my attempts to become educated but increasing recognition of my ignorance. Now, I want to sort of put two little theories out, which I'm going to touch on, not little theories, I suppose, that I'm going to touch on over the course of this conversation. So, we all know the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Which is that you have to be good at something to know whether somebody else is good at something or not. I mean, if you're watching some surgeon while eating junior mints, you're watching some surgeon do surgery. If you're just some guy, you don't know whether the surgeon is going, doing a good or a bad job. But if you're really good at surgery yourself, you can evaluate another surgeon in real time and know whether he's doing a good or bad job. So it takes quality to know quality. And historically, this is sort of my big overarching thesis, historically, human beings have been terrible at philosophy, absolutely, unbelievably, wretchedly awful at philosophy. And we know that because after 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 years, 4,000 years, 10 times the length of the scientific method, we have not one absolute certainty in philosophy, at least certainly not one that leads to anything else, and in particular to anything moral, which is really the point of philosophy. The one thing that differentiates philosophy from science is ethics, morals, and, and mathematics, ethics, morals. <laughs> Logic itself, ethics, morals. What moral certainty do we have after 4,000 years of philosophy? So human beings have been unbelievably bad at philosophy throughout history. Now, much like a dog can catch a frisbee without knowing anything about the equations of physics, we have personalized and localized instincts regarding philosophy. But we have the same relationship to moral philosophy as a whole that a dog has to physics. The dog instinctually understands enough physics to live as a dog, but that's it. And human beings have just enough instinctual morality to vaguely parent and, you know, get by in their life, but have absolutely no theoretical understanding or universalization of ethics. And I'm talking philosophical, philosophically speaking in the realm of theology, in particular Christianity. Universality is well understood, well documented, well expressed, uh, well examined, and well transmitted. But I'm talking about philosophy. We suck at philosophy as a species. Now, it's not because we're bad at philosophy instinctually. It's just that being good at philosophy undermines the power structures that enslave us, right? Understanding, I'll get into this. This is a very important philosopher for this because it's a pivotal point between the philosophy of the ancients, the Christianity of the dark to middle ages to the subjectivism and relativism of the modern age all comes through Descartes. Descartes is the father of modern philosophy. So, if people are bad at philosophy, is an abstract discipline. If people are bad at philosophy, mostly because of gatekeepers and muddying the waters and fear of blowback from philosophers, their fear of blowback from the powers that be by being truly philosophical and truly universal in their morals. There's a lot of fear of blowback. There's a lot of fear of deplatforming or being tortured or murdered or imprisoned or, or you know, ostracized or, or exiled. Lots of this kind of stuff going on. The lesson of Socrates was pretty instructive to most philosophers. So philosophers being roped in to serve the powers that be through either gatekeepers keying, keeping true universalist and true moralists out of 
the mix, right? Keeping the true universal moralists away from society by deplatforming them uh, or, or never allowing them to get into any position of prominence or pursuing and burning any books that came out and so on. So philosophers want to live. They don't want to be tortured and killed. And so they will bend their truth around power. This is what Nietzsche said about very beautiful, very rich, very powerful people, that they never quite know the truth because everyone bends their perspectives around them, right? Which is why very pretty women get away with Reiki healing and crystals and <laughs> astrology and all this sort of nonsense uh, because people don't want to correct the woman because she's pretty and instinctual genetics take over. So we don't have a single moral certainty, a single moral certainty. We have moral hysteria for sure. We have moral hysteria where morality grows like a cancer, like pseudo-morality grows like a cancer. So we have moral hysteria on a regular basis, but we don't have any moral knowledge. That Moral hysteria has the same relationship to morality as beautiful dance, as St. Vitus dance has to beautiful dancing, right? St. Vitus dance was a form of hysteria that took over sometimes entire villages in the uh, medieval world where they would dance until they died uh, in, in some abstract, collectivist, ecstatic insanity. So what happens is, is people don't know who is a good philosopher because until you get good at something, you can't measure the quality of somebody else. And we are still in a pre-philosophical era, as we have been through all of human history. I do think that the internet and conversations like these have the best chance to move us into a philosophical era, but we are in a pre-philosophical era. We are in an era of collectivism and superstition and subjectivism and relativism, but without the absolutes of a divinity excluded from human concerns, we now have manipulated hysteria which is really the opposite of morality in general manipulated hysteria does the exact opposite of what is morally good so people can't judge who is a good philosopher so what do they do as a whole well what they do is they look for signs of superlative intelligence right so they look for signs of superlative intelligence and then they say well this guy is so smart he's so good at so many things that he must be right about philosophy. Which is nutty, of course, when you think about it. Right, so Descartes was fantastic at mathematics. So then people say, well, you know, he's got to have something really cool to say about philosophy. But I'm not great at mathematics. I'm good at philosophy. Does that mean that mathematicians should listen to me when I talk about mathematics? No, no. It literally is as nutty as saying, well, you know, this guy is a really good mechanic, so he should take out my appendix <laughs> with a wrench. I mean, it's nutty. I mean, Einstein, obviously brilliant at physics, but praised socialism, praised communism, and praised the slaughterhouse, mass-murdering king of the abattoir known as Vladimir Lenin. So Einstein was as useful in the realm of philosophy as I would be in the realm of hardcore physics. I mean, Noam Chomsky praised stripping rights in some ways from the unvaccinated. Great linguist, does that mean he's a great philosopher? No, any more than Noam Chomsky should listen to me about linguistic theory because I'm good at philosophy. 
So there's this glow. Oh, super smart. Oh, he's really good at mathematics. Oh, he's really good at translating, you know, Greek to Latin. And he's really good at this and really good at that. Therefore, he must be great at philosophy. Let's listen to him about that. Like, you know, philosophy is a very singular discipline. And being good at philosophy is not some splash damage penumbra effect of being good at other things. I'm a good rock climber. Uh, that must mean that I can also be an astronaut and fly a plane and uh, be a classical dancer. It's like, no, this, these skills don't splash over into other things. Somebody who's just brilliant at a bunch of things doesn't, doesn't mean that they're brilliant at philosophy. So that's one of the sort of theories that I'm going to sort of bring up with Descartes, and you can look at it with others as well. Another is, and I've talked about this in the show before as a whole, but I didn't touch on it briefly here. Another is, I don't trust anybody who's not done hard manual labor in their life and, and required it to live, right? Not just like, oh, I went tree planting one summer, man, because, you know, I just wanted to smoke weed and have sex and <laughs> be with nature. As somebody who has had to work at hard manual labor for a living for a significant period of time, like not just a weekend or whatever, right? I don't trust anybody who hasn't had that necessity, that requirement, that in order to eat, in order to have shelter, in order to live, they have to work hard labor with inanimate objects, with inanimate things. I dig ditches. In my case, I did a lot of physical labor. Uh, I, I, I mean, as a painter, I, was, I moved uh, offices, helped people move and set up offices. I dug ditches. I weeded gardens. I did, you know, just pretty hard manual labor. And I needed that to live. I needed that to eat. In other words, if I had messed up in terms of metaphysics and empiricism and epistemology, if I hadn't known what reality was and wasn't able to manipulate the objects, inanimate objects within reality, then I would not have survived. So you can't screw around when your survival depends on dealing effectively with objective reality. Now, the fact that I was in programming, see, programming is a form of inanimate objects because you can't charm the program into being faster. You know, you think of all of these, you know, hot babes who stroll around doctor's offices and low-cut tops as pharmaceutical reps. I think Heather Locklear played one of those quite well in a Scrubs episode. So she can charm and lower cleavage and manipulate doctors into taking her crap, right? But you can't do that with computer programming. You can't do that with bridge building. You can't do that with road making. You can't do that with, I mean, if you're in sales, I guess you can charm the government into giving you a contract for road making, but the actual engineers who are building the roads, they can't charm, they can't manipulate, they can't, there's no, no amount of low cut top or shaking your butt or twerking is going to make the crops grow if it's too dry. You actually have to go and get some water and irrigate your crops. So this is why I'll sort of look at early life. And if it's like, well, this guy comes, you know, he was born to a wealthy family and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, then the only time that he ever had to work in any mechanical or physical capacity was either very intermittently or as a kind of proletariat slumming or anything like that. But yeah, I don't, um, I just, I just have no trust in anyone who has not had to survive on manual labor in the real world because they've not 
actually, and this is why I have some significant sympathies for the arguments that Roman makes in my novel, The Future, freedomain.locals.com. I want people who've actually had to deal with reality. Don't you? Don't you? Want people who've had a significant survival stake in handling reality. People want to tell you what is true. They want to tell you what is right, what is factual, what is real. Okay, have you ever had to deal with reality for the sake of survival? And not an artificial situation. So some guy who's like, well, you know, I, I did spend a summer rock climbing. It's like, but that's, I mean, that's, that's better than nothing for sure, but that's not, your survival isn't based on rock climbing. That's a hobby. That's a, um, that's a uh, side hustle at best. So, yeah, I just, if, if you come from money, if you've not had to work hard labor in the real world in order to survive, really don't care what you have to say about reality. I really don't. I mean, it, it's like the rich kid saying, well, you know, you just need to save your money. Well, that's not how you became rich. You became rich because daddy gave you money. You know, or some kid whose father gave him his first vice presidency right out of college saying, well, you know, you've, you've just got to really organize your career. It's like, Shut up. It's just nepotism. Daddy happened to have a factory and you got to be vice president. You got to be the foreman because daddy put you there. Don't tell me about what is real if you've never had any stake in survival in navigating reality. I don't care. I don't care. It's completely uninteresting to me. And we can think, of course, of a lot of people in the intellectual sphere who don't pass that simple basic test. Have you had to survive by dealing with reality? Okay, then don't tell me what reality is because you don't know. You've never had to deal with bare, bald reality for the sake of survival. So why would I care what you have to say about what is true or real? Or It's all just a bunch of nonsense. Okay, so I sort of want to mention that, and we can see this with a variety of, uh, of people in these, uh, in these shows. Now, a lot of philosophers are sickly, and this is not a necessarily positive or, or negative thing. And they're sickly in a way, of course, medicine was so bad throughout most of human history that until the 19th century, you were better off not seeing a doctor than seeing a doctor. So the school that he went to, La Flèche, had a very rigorous schedule, but Descartes was allowed to rest in bed until the middle of the morning, and we assume that's because he was... Uh, he was sickly. He was perhaps a little hysterical. So after um, he left his school, he spent the next four years earning a baccalaureate in law at the University of Poitiers. And there are some researchers who think or that there's evidence for that Descartes had a nervous breakdown during this time. So he was well-versed in a lot of subjects. Later on, he added uh, medical studies, uh, a study of theology to what he learned. But eventually, he just tossed all of this aside. So he wrote later on, and in a book that was published in 1637 called Discourse on the Method of Rightly Conducting the Reason and Seeking Truth in the Sciences, he said he resolved to seek no knowledge other than that of which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world. So introspection and empiricism was where knowledge, which means he's just not going to read about the opinions of other people. Or the, right? 
So his father was a lawyer. His family wanted Descartes to be a lawyer. A lot of his relatives were lawyers. And he got his degree in 1616, but he never practiced law or entered into any kind of government occupation that would harness his law degree. So he became a gentleman soldier. Now, to be honest, and and if you know more about this, please let me know. I assume he's not on the front lines as a gentleman soldier. He's kind of a dilettante and all of that. So he moved in 1618 to Breda because Prince Maurice was fighting against the Catholic parts of the Netherlands, uh, which later formed into Belgium, and he was supporting the Protestant Prince Maurice. Okay, so why do we care? Why do we care about the dude? Well, he's really the father of modern philosophy. There was an understanding in the early 17th century around feelings and passions and theology and subjectivism and faith and studying other people's minds rather than reality itself. And Descartes was one of the first clean slate guys. Clean slate, like I've said a million times. Philosophy is easy intellectually. It's hard emotionally because it's hard to look at the complicated algebra and equations of everything that's been taught to you and just wipe it clean. Just that wet, damp cloth on the whiteboard and just, nope, gone, 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 gone. Wipe it clean. That emotionally is devastating. It feels like dying. It feels like hell itself. Because it's opening up the possibility that everyone who told you anything was lying, was manipulating, was controlling you, was subjugating you, was enslaving you. It's a very brutal thing to go through to look at, you know, friends, family, teachers, priests, politicians, media, and say, maybe you're just a bunch of liars. And whether it's conscious or not, the effect is that you simply implant false things in me in order to control and subjugate me. You keep me away from reality so I don't have any strength to stand on my own two feet for what I know to be true. It's a brutal process. I wrote this when I was 17 that we, in a poem. We must bury ourselves in order to be resurrected. You have to go into the grave in order to come out, Gandalf the White style, to come out with the truth. So in the past, everyone tried to build on everyone else. And I'm not saying he was the only one to do this and not necessarily the first, but certainly he spread this argument that you've got to just blank slate the entire thing. Start assuming you know absolutely nothing about anything, that everything's been told to you is a lie, there's no truth in it, or if it is, it's accidental, which you don't know the reasons for, therefore it's not really truth. So he had this great analogy. So he said, okay, look, 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 man, you got a barrel of apples. And you suspect that there's some number of bad apples and rotten apples, apples, worms, in that. And you want to end up with a barrel full of apples you can eat healthy, not diseased, not worm-ridden apples. So what do you do? Do you just try to reach around in and sort? No, 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 of course not. What you do is you take that barrel of apples and you tip it over and you shake it upside down. You get all the apples out on the ground. You empty out the barrel. And then what do you do? Well, you pick up each apple and you say, is this one good, clean, disease-free? Yes. Okay, put it in the barrel. And you find when you pick one up and it's rotten or worms coming out of it and you throw it away. So you've got to dump out everything 
and only bring back in what is healthy. So he said, this is like the mind. You dump out everything you think you know, and then you take every single one of your potential beliefs and you inspect it in great detail, and only if it passes the test do you put it back in the barrel. So the first thing, of course, was the statement, I exist. Right? This is the most famous quote, quote I think, therefore I am. That if you, even if everything around you is deceiving you, even if everything around you is, is false, even everything that's ever been told to you is a lie, you exist because you're asking those questions. You think, therefore you exist. Now, the dude was a total polymath, like no question. The 20th century put Descartes largely in the category of philosopher, but pretty much every century has looked at different aspects of what he did. Uh, He did a lot of work in theoretical physics, so some people say, yeah, he's a mathematician who also wrote some philosophy. (laughs) I I fantasize, just personally, I fantasize about him not living because he introduced Cartesian geometry, Cartesian from Descartes, right? So you've got algebra. Now, when I was not happy with algebra, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if Descartes had never (laughs) come along? But then, of course, we wouldn't have computers and stuff like that, right? He worked on the laws of refraction. He got a pretty good empirical understanding of rainbows. And he proposed a way in which the solar system could have formed without any divine intervention. Although he was not very keen to promote that because everybody knew about Galileo's fate at the hands of the Inquisition, which took the Catholic Church 400 years to uh, apologize for. So the fear of persecution, yeah, philosophers have to be very sensitive to two things. Number one, the truth. Number two, blowback, right? That's the two skills that philosophers need. And the two are one of the same, right? Because the more truth you tell, the more blowback you can expect. So you have to be very sensitive and driven to the truth but you also have to be ninja about a blowback. Truth flattens hierarchy. This is a basic foundational aspect of the philosophy that, that I work on. Truth flattens hierarchy. Hierarchy is based on falsehood. Right? The king is put there by the divine right of, of God, and, and the collective will produces a politician who can order everyone around, and the common good and the collective well-being and the, right, the country and sacrifice. Truth flattens hierarchies. Lies starve those at the bottom and fatten those at the top. That's why they're so profitable. So, I mean, we we saw this, and we see this uh, with a variety of philosophers, that we saw this with Hobbes burning his own work for fear of being accused of atheism, and Descartes was not very keen at all on promoting this formation of the solar system without God, right? This is the famous question that the solar system and the moon and the sun and the retrograde motion of Mars and the new moons around Jupiter and the rings of Saturn and all of it is just wild stuff and wild stuff. And planetary motions could not be explained by putting the Earth at the center of the solar system. So the Bible says the Earth is fixed and does not move and at least there's some interpretations of it that way. If the Earth is flying around the Sun and the Sun is the center of the solar system, then that was considered heretical. Right? Galileo. But still it moves. Or I can't remember Copernicus or Tycho Brahe, or maybe it was Galileo, showing a clergyman the model of the solar system. 
And the clergyman said, it's all very fascinating how this all works. But where is the hand of God here? And the astronomer said, it's not, uh, it's not needed. Oof, right? So Pope Alexander Seventh added Descartes' works to the index of prohibited books, which was not uh, particularly ideal for him, of course, and part of the threat that he had to live under. And of course, we'll never know how much that threat caused him to deviate from his single-minded pursuit of truth, reason, and evidence. We'll never know. But, of course, it had an effect. I mean, you wouldn't threaten people if it didn't have an effect. So his education was considered excellent at the time, but he followed the path of Socrates. So he began to doubt the teachings of his teachers. So in his work called The Discourse on the Method, he wrote, I was given to believe that by their means a clear and certain knowledge could be obtained of all that is useful in life. I had an extreme desire to acquire instruction. But so soon as I had achieved the entire course of study at the close of which one is usually received into the ranks of the learned, I had utterly changed my opinion. So this is kind of an early 17th century thing. So the mind tear that was occurring in Europe is almost impossible to exaggerate. Like the, the severity and depth of and the brutality of people's uh, being wreaked upon people's consciousness by what was going on in Europe. And this is in the realm of science and philosophy, as we talked about with Francis Bacon. So science, this is a Richard Feynman quote, science is founded on skepticism of experts. Science is founded on skepticism of experts. The argument of, from authority is the opposite of the scientific method. The scientific method is blank slate with regards to nature and, and mechanics and matter and energy. Blank slate. So, individual thought from first principles, rejecting the argument from authority, was producing amazing progress in the sciences and in economics as well. The application of the scientific method to the problems of agriculture was essential to the growth of the modern world. It took human beings for the first time, really, ever. It took human beings, uh, the rich had always had this, but this is everyone. It took human beings out of subsistence existence for the first time in the multi-hundred-thousand-year history of humanity. You know, remember, during the Ice Age, it was down to like 10,000 people. So always being four bites away from starving to death, science produced excess food. Excess food and the weapons that science was producing, you've got excess population, you've got more powerful weapons, which means that political leaders desperately need science to produce more people and better weapons so that they can have the age of conquest, they can have the age of colonialism, they can carve up the map into various colors. But the only way that science works is no argument from authority, think for yourself, reason from first principles, don't accept anything that anyone says is true. And that what's important to remember is that there is a deep horror when you realize how powerful science is and how much food and health it brings you. Because, you know, people who aren't starving have better immune systems. People who have cleaner water don't get sick from cholera and other things 
as much. So when science comes along, there's this unbelievable, deep spinal rage. It's unconscious for the most part, but it's very powerful. Rage towards all the liars and enslavers of the past who kept humanity at a bare subsistence level for hundreds of thousands of years so they could fatten their own asses. And by that I'm not specifically referring to donkeys. It's a deep rage. It's a deep rage. When you're locked underground for your life and you get out into the sunshine, the sunshine is beautiful and it brings to you relief and rage. Right? Relief and rage are often the same thing. And the longer it takes for the relief to come, the more rage there is at how long it took to get there, right? You know, if, if somebody accidentally locks you into a, a cupboard and then unlocks you in a few minutes, you know, there's a, well, I'm glad to be out of there, and there's some, maybe some minor annoyance or whatever, but what if it's 10 years? It locks you in there for 10 years. You're incredibly relieved to get out, and you're incredibly angry at whoever locked you in the cupboard or the cellar for 10 years. So imagine a population, a couple of hundred thousand years, locked into subsistence, starvation, and disease by liars for the sake of power. And that what the king had or the tribal chieftain had throughout most of human history could have been available to everyone if they had just let people think for themselves. Right? I would rather be living now than be a king a hundred years ago. Toothache. <laughs> Antibiotics. You name it, right? So it's really important to understand that when science comes along and says, oh, we think for ourselves, we don't accept authority, we reason from first principles, and look at that, we're no longer starving to death on a regular basis. I mean, it was everything. It's transportation, the market system as a whole, right? More crops, transportation, and the free market virtually eliminated starvation. Because in the past, you could be starving to death 15 miles away or 10 miles away from a farm which was throwing out food because they had too much. Because there was no market to move these goods. There wasn't a good transportation system or a good way or a motive or incentive or a methodology to get from A to B to get crops moved around. You can't move the crops and people starve to death in weird little pockets. So the rulers are thrilled at science and deeply uneasy about science being, the scientific principles being moved over to philosophical principles. Because blank slate, no argument from authority, everyone thinks for themselves. In science, that produces what are functionally miracles, but in politics, that flattens the hierarchy. If science, and it did, it proved how incredibly valuable it was to assume that everything that was told to you was a lie. Everything that science says is like real good science, not this dollar science crap that's going on in the capitalism world, but Real science slaps you awake with a wet fish and says, everything you've been told is a lie, think for yourself. (laughs) Everything you've been told is a lie, think for yourself. That's science. And even your senses will lie to you in a way. Looks like the sun's going around the earth. Maybe it's not. Everyone who tells you the earth is flat because it seems flat. Everything you're being told is false. That doesn't mean everyone's a liar, because, you know, if you 
genuinely don't know the right information or you believe that it is, doesn't mean that you're the same as a liar, but everything you perceive is false. Now, that's kind of incomprehensible. You, you wouldn't imagine an animal doing that. Maybe that zebra is not really a zebra. Maybe that plant is a zebra, right? A lion couldn't survive or flourish by saying, everything I perceive is false. Everything that's told to me is false. Let's start with, from that assumption. But human beings have dominated the entire planet in the simple 400-year experiment of saying, hey, maybe everything I've been told is false. Maybe everything everyone believes is wrong. Now, in science, again, it gives you an army with great weapons to take that approach. But if it begins to impinge upon moral philosophy, then it threatens to flatten the hierarchy and liberate humanity from the chattel-like enslavement that characterizes all of our history. It's a very, very big, big thing. So, science, it's great to doubt, but you actually have to have answers. It's great to doubt. Doubt everything, absolutely. But you have to have answers. The doubt without the answers is paralysis. I mean, it's a form of insanity, right? I mean, if you didn't trust any of your senses, you didn't trust anything that was going on in your mind or body, you couldn't do anything. You wouldn't be able to get out of bed. You wouldn't know you were in bed. You wouldn't know you were awake or dreaming, right? So it's fine to doubt, but science has the significant advantage when properly practiced of doubt is good because it leads to facts, answers, the truth. So Descartes was taking all the apples out of the barrel, laying them on the ground, saying, I'm only going to put back in the ones that are healthy, that are right, that are true, that are good, that are edible, survivable, so to speak. So the rulers profited from the doubt that led to the scientific method because the scientific method produced answers, population, and weaponry that was useful to the rulers. So the rulers were like, yay, science. Now, I'm not talking about the more fundamentalist religious leaders because the hostility, well, there was a hostility towards religious leaders that came about over the course of the Black Death. And I've touched on this before. I'll keep it real brief here. In the Black Death, yay, China, right? In the Black Death... Priests died the most because they would go from deathbed to deathbed. And, of course, the priests have always said that the that illness is a punishment from God for immorality. And so the fact that the priests died the most and the wages of sin is death gave people skepticism about what the priests were saying. And scientists come along and produce far more benefit to humanity in terms of, like, food and, and uh, resources and survivability, calories, basically. Scientists come along and like Turnip Townsend later on, scientists come along and produce far more benefit to humanity than priests and rulers had for hundreds of thousands of years. That's wild, right? So science, yes, doubt everything, and then the rulers are happy to promote it, with the tension, of course, with the clergy. But the rulers who weren't promoting science didn't generally last. So science goes from doubt to truth, from doubt to certainty, which in the history of philosophy, the doubt, yes, the certainty, no. This is why philosophy is a paralytic in general. Philosophy is a paralytic. It paralyzes good people into navel-gazing. The purpose of science is to doubt your perceptions, to doubt what you've been told, 
to have no argument from authority and relentlessly pursue the truth until it is accepted beyond a reasonable doubt. The purpose of philosophy should be to follow the scientific method, throw all the apples out, but philosophy never puts any apples back in. That's the problem. Right, so what people do with truth and falsehood is say, okay, well, I can at least survive this apple. I can, you know, wipe it off and there's no disease, there's no worms, so I can eat this apple, right? Now, philosophy dumps out all the apples and never puts anything back in. Now, Descartes tried, failed, failed, but tried. Because the rulers like the science that leads to answers. Higher population, better weapons, more taxes that you can collect. It likes economics that lead to better trade. But how much do the rulers like philosophy that leads to universal morality? Well, the answer is not at all. Not at all. And Descartes, by trying to take the scientific method and applying it to philosophy, in a situation where to speak the truth about philosophy, moral philosophy, would have gotten him killed, tortured and killed, Well, it's one thing to say dump out the barrel of apples. It's another thing if somebody says, oh, if you put one healthy apple back in there, I'm going to pull your balls off with some ferrets. So this is what happens continually in the realm of philosophy, that there's all the skepticism and doubt. But then if certainty is achieved in the realm of moral philosophy, which is UPB, well, you're in trouble, right? Because more, the more people who accept UPB, right, truth flattens hierarchies. So science had shown to everyone, observe, experiment, reason things through, reproduce it with others, all that kind of stuff, right? Fantastic. And Descartes was like, okay, um... Not so much with, so with regards to philosophical truth. Well, it can't be observational, right? Because you can't see philosophical truth. It's not like an object you can examine, like an apple falling from a tree. You can't see philosophical truth, so observation doesn't really work. You can't do experimentations on moral truths or philosophical truths. So it has to be reason and reason alone. Reason and reason alone. 10th November, 1619. Hey, like that not-so-true project. 1619. He's stationed in the German province of Bavaria. And I'm sure you've had these, I know I've had these, just one day that just changes your life. 10th November, 1619. It's cold as a witch's tit, as they used to say when I was a kid. Freezing. He takes shelter in a tiny room, and there's only one thing really in the room, a ceramic furnace. He spends his day meditating. And he'd lie in bed and people would come in saying, what are you doing? He's like thinking, been there. So he has three vivid dreams. He meditates and he passes into slumber and he has three vivid dreams. And he wakes up, jumps up, and he's like, these dreams, Eureka, right? Eureka, these dreams are visions. The natural world is a single system that runs on mathematics. That's what he thought. The natural world is a single system that runs on mathematics. 
to simplify matter, to break matter down into a few fundamental properties that interact with each other on the basis of a very few universal laws. Oof. Right? This is Occam's razor. Go back to William of Occam, right? Matter just has a couple of properties, and matter and energy interact with each other and between each other according to just a few universal laws. And mathematics can describe those laws. So that's wild. I mean, that's, that's very modern, right? That's very modern. And that's why he's considered the father of modern philosophy, because he took the scientific method and tried to apply it to philosophy, but ended up in a solipsistic, navel-gazing way, only thinking about himself and never coming to any universal conclusions about reality and therefore, if you can't even get universal conclusions about metaphysics other than your own existence, you can't get to epistemology, really, other than the proof of your own existence, I think, therefore I am. You can't get to ethics, and you can't talk anything about politics. Now, there were, of course, some religious people who said, well, that's exactly right. That's exactly what God would want, exactly what God would argue for. Because simple is better, fewer principles is better. So the fact that matter has a few fundamental properties and material interactions are based on following a few universal laws, there were some people who were like, yeah, that makes total sense. And there were many people who believed and accepted and promulgated the idea that studying nature was studying the mind of God. God designed nature, God created the universal laws, but of course the problem is that the more the universal laws and the properties of matter run themselves, the more you push God backward in time and have this deus conception of God that God wound up the clock and left it ticking but doesn't intervene anymore. And the materialistic view of the universe doesn't allow for spirituality. It does not allow for the soul. Right? So the modern problem, I don't really think it's a problem, but I've made that case elsewhere. I won't get into it much here. The mind-body problem, right? Or the soul-body problem. What is the seat of consciousness? Well, the seat of consciousness is the brain, right? And the mind is an effect of the brain, in the same way that a shadow is an effect of a, of a statue and gravity is an effect of matter. The mind is an effect of the brain. But the problem, of course, is that if the mind is an effect of the brain, then when the brain dies, the mind vanishes, right? If you take the statue away, the shadow goes with it. If you take the matter away, then there's no gravitational force. Now, if you have a purely materialistic view of the universe and the mind is an effect of matter, and when the, the sorry, the, yeah, the mind is an effect of the brain, and when the physical brain dies, therefore the, the mind dies, well, you no longer have the soul, you no longer have immortality, and you no longer have immaterial consciousness. Right? If consciousness is always an effect of matter, then we should be able to see God. If consciousness is an effect of matter, you can't live beyond your death. If you can't live beyond your death, what are the priests selling you? Well, of course, what they're selling you, and it's a coarse way to put it, but you know, forgive me for the coarseness, just looking at it from economic terms, what is the marketplace of the priest? The marketplace of the priest is, I can offer you a path to heaven, 
or if you reject my teachings, you go to hell. Ah, but if you die with your body and your consciousness does not survive the death of your mind, then there is no heaven to offer nor hell to threaten with. Now, if there is no heaven to offer nor hell to threaten with, why be good? This is my sympathy for the theological position. Why be good? If you are merely an animal with a big brain, why be good? Because being good is a rejection of our animal natures in many ways. Of course we want things without earning them. We want things for free. We want things that are easy. We want to conserve energy. Taking from others is far more efficient than building or growing things yourself. It's far more efficient to kill the occupant of a house and take over his house than it is to build your own house. It's far easier to steal food from a farmer than to grow your own food, particularly if there are people around who steal from farmers. The animal nature is immoral, but it's only moral if we have a standard of morality that we're expected to follow. And if the standard of morality that we're expected to follow is based upon the afterlife or based upon mind without matter, the soul and God. If our entire morality is based upon immortality and scientists and thinkers come along and say we do not outlive our own demise, then we're here for a short time, not a good time. No virtue. Why would you, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you study for a test you don't like, which will never be marked? It's really foundational here, right, right down at the essence, right down at the base of things, right? Pick some subject you hate or find boring. Why would you study that subject if you hate it? It has no utility for you. In fact, it interferes with your utility because you're not doing more pleasurable things. And the test will never be marked. Right, so I'm not great at learning foreign languages, but for my master's degree, I had to learn how to translate French into English. So I took a whole bunch of courses and did a whole bunch of practice on how to translate French into English and vice versa. Have I ever done it since? I have not. But I was being marked on that. It was required to translate a foreign language to graduate, so I did. Le même chose, the same thing. That's why my French pronunciation is not Super wretched. Fairly, but not super. The test you're going to be marked on is virtue. And the reward you get is heaven. So think of all the tests you studied for in your life. Why did you study for them if you didn't like the subject or enjoy the subject? Because they would be marked and you got a reward for passing the test and you got a punishment for failing the test. The reward would be you move on to the next grade, you graduate or whatever the punishment might be, you fail, you have to stay in the same grade. I don't think they do that as much anymore, but that certainly was the case when I was a kid. First thing everyone did in a class when the teacher got lazy and put on a video, they'd say, is this going to be on the test? And if the teacher said, no, this is just for informational purposes only, everybody started doodling, everybody passed notes. I played with my calculator watch, <laughs> stud that I was. 
It's not on the test. There is no test. What is the reward for virtue? Why be good? What is the reward for virtue? We all know the reward for vice, corruption, and conformity. We see that everywhere, all the time. Every time we open a news site, we see that the rewards for vice, corruption, and dishonesty are immense, incalculable. And what are the rewards for honesty, integrity, and virtue in this life? In this life. The materialist conception speaks to many people. There is no test. You're not being marked. You can't fail. doesn't matter. When you rid the body of the soul, you rid it of the reward for virtue. And what is the point of suffering? The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, lies, slander, Falsehoods, deplatforming, attacks, impoverishment, insults. Why would you suffer all of that for no immortal reward? Don't worry, I've asked myself that on occasion. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, of course I've asked myself that on occasion, more than occasions. So, while it's true that the scientific method and the materialist conception of the world gives you great power from the standpoint of power of a nature, weaponry, food, architecture, you name it. It gives great power to humanity at the same time as it strips humanity of the reward for virtue. You say, power corrupts. So in a way, this is kind of true. Power over nature is a materialistic view of the universe, which gives you great power over nature. It gives you great weaponry and great wealth. But by taking out the reward for virtue, because in a materialistic universe, the mind does not outlive the body. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no reward, no punishment. In fact, it inverts it. The reward for vice and the punishment for virtue occurs in this life and is not reconciled by any reward for virtue and punishment for vice in the afterlife. Power and corruption are the same thing. You gain power over nature at exactly the same instant as you lose any incentive to be moral, which is the modern world, right? It's the modern world. So, his discourse was epistemology, metaphysics. His book, Meditations, that's the modern world, man, right there. New school of thought called rationalism. So in rationalism, the only certainty you can get is through the internal operation of reason. You can't get truth through the senses. Because the scientific revolution both elevated and destroyed the senses. I know that sounds annoyingly paradoxical. That's kind of true. Let me sort of make the case in a second or two. The scientific method smashes our certainty in the senses because things which appear to be true from our limited perspectives are not true. The stars do not rotate around the world. The sun does not orbit the earth. 
So what we seem, what we see is true, is not true. The world looks flat, it's round, you understand, right? Sun and the moon are the same size, according to our view. So it smashes the senses. And so after the scientific revolution, people couldn't say, well, just trust the evidence of the senses. Now, of course, the scientific revolution required the evidence of the senses to write down, to verify, to double-check, to reproduce experiments in disparate locations and so on. So it absolutely required the evidence of the senses. But in terms, it really smashed people's certainty. And I remember this when I was a kid, super into astronomy when I was a little kid. And I just remember looking at a picture. I still remember exactly the coloring. I have no idea what book it was in. Looking at a picture of the world and really feeling dizzy. How the hell can this thing be a sphere? <laughs> How the hell can this thing be a sphere? And of course, like everyone, you look at that picture as a kid and you imagine all the people on the bottom of the sphere falling off. Right? We understand that. We all climb trees and we hung onto the bottom of the branches like people would seem to be hanging off the bottom of the sphere and just fall off. It really messes with the evidence of the senses. And so if you say, well, knowledge is based on the evidence of the senses, science comes along and says, oh, yeah, but you thought that the oil was flat, and you thought that the sun went around the earth, and you thought this, and you thought that, and you're wrong. So you can rely on the senses. We tried relying on the senses for a couple of hundred thousand years. All we got was enslavement. So Descartes, in Discourse, writes, he had to, quote, reject as absolutely false everything as to which I could imagine the least ground of doubt. Right, this is taking all the apples out of the barrel, right? We've got to have absolute certainty, not even a tiny, tiny bit of doubt. And when he thought about his past, he wrote, All that up to the present time I have accepted, as most true and certain I have learned from the senses or through the senses, but it has sometimes proved to me that these senses are deceptive, and it is wiser not to trust entirely anything by which we have once been deceived. And we've all had this experience of being disoriented by falsehood in the senses. I remember when I was six, I went to visit my father in Africa, and I remember driving and seeing all the water on the road. And I was explained, oh, it's a mirage, and then wow, blows my mind, right? So in his discourse, Descartes also wrote, Thus, because our senses sometimes deceive us, I wish to suppose that nothing is just as they cause to imagine it to be. I reject it as false all the reasons formerly accepted by as demonstrations. It was absolutely essential that the I who thought this should be somewhat, and remarking that this truth, I think, therefore I am, was so certain and so assured that all the most extravagant suppositions brought forth by the skeptics were incapable of shaking it. Right, So he's got to abandon the senses. This is rationalism. The truth is within. So in his Meditations 1, he says, okay, there's some things which seem to be absolutely true, but uh, let's put it to the test. So he said, for example, there is the fact I am here, seated by the fire, attired in my dressing gown, having this paper in my hands and other similar matters, and how can I deny that these hands and this body are mine? At the same time, I must remember that I am a man, and that consequently I am in the habit of sleeping, and in my dreams 
represented to myself the same things or sometimes even less probable things than do those who are insane in their waking moments. Right. So think of math mathematical proof. Mathematical proof does not require things, objects. It's self-referential. But of course, I would argue that the rules of mathematics are derived from the evidence of the senses, that we see disparate objects of similar nature in the world, a bunch of coconuts, and therefore we get the concept of numbers to represent things. And so while it's true that mathematics is to a large degree self-referential, engineering, of course, has to reference things in the real world, but math, pure mathematics, you don't have to reference things. So you can say, well, if you're a mathematician, it's very tempting to say, well, the truth and certainty of mathematics is only disrupted by the foolish and false senses. It mucks things up. But I would say the rules of mathematics, the rules of logic and identity and consistency are derived from the evidence of the senses. So you can't reject the senses if they're the ones who deliver you your pure abstractions. Right? If, if a message comes to you from the other side of the world, you can't say, I accept the message, but I reject that there is a messenger. Because the only reason you have the message is because of the messenger. So, but man, man oh, power structures uh, have a big problem with the evidence of the senses. So you look at the senses, you say, well, that king's just kind of like me, but he's in a funny hat. So rulers don't like sense data that undermines their power, but they do like the pursuit of sense data that gives them good soldiers and scientists and farmers. So it's, it's, it's really torn up. The rulers want complete dedication to empiricism in that which serves their needs, but no dedication to empiricism in that which destroys their power. Theologians and priests and the, the ecclesiastical rulers, they need sense skepticism. I mean, I, I very clearly remember when I went to church as a kid saying, this, could this just be a guy in a funny hat? I also remember thinking, if the ideas are so good, why do we need all of this pomp and circumstance and funny hats and stained glass and all that? So what happens when you cast out sense perception? Okay, you've got to look at the internal self-referential self things, like uh, the, the sciences, the pure sciences, uh, arithmetic, uh, geometry, and so on, right? So he says, for whether I am awake or asleep, two and three together always form five, and the square can never have more than four sides, and it does not seem too clear and apparent that truths could be suspected of any falsity or uncertainty. Right, so internal self-referential things. But again, I would say these come from the evidence of the senses to abandon the senses, which gets you to pure reason, is like sailing for a year to get to a foreign land and then saying, I have this foreign land, but I cannot trust the boat. I cannot trust that there is an ocean. I cannot trust that there is conveyance over the ocean. I cannot trust that there is a ship. It's like, but the only reason you're there is because of the ship. So saying you can't trust the ship is crazy, right? The only reason we have these abstract rules is because of the evidence of the senses. Now, of course, you have a problem if you say that only things within the mind are certain and the senses deceive you. So rationalism, only the things of pure reason, can be known for certain. Okay, so if you are an empiricist, if you believe that knowledge in the mind comes from the evidence of the senses then how do you get certainty from uncertainty? Right? You can't get 100% probability from any 
combination of less than 100% probabilities. So how do you get certainty from uncertainty? Well, Descartes then, like Plato says, well, no, no, no. We have to have innate ideas within our mind that must exist prior to our experience or existence. Because everything we experience causes this demon of doubt. So we have to have within us innate certainties that exist prior to experience. So, straight up to Platonism that we know the truth before we're born and the senses distract us from all this, that, and the other. And, and so we get where this is coming from, right? So to conclude, there is this Cartesian demon. This is sort of what he's, he's famous for. And I remember studying this when I was uh, 19 or so, and uh, I was at Glendon College, a campus of York University, and there was this incredibly ancient philosophy professor that I resurrected as the teacher of uh, Tom and Hart in my novel, Almost. The incredibly ancient philosophy professor with a fairly spry and youthful, balding teacher's assistant, OTA. And he was talking all about... So first of all, he said, you have to be on time uh, for this class. And you will be marked at this level for this. And the exam is at such and such a date. You're expected to do two essays. Right? Gave all these rules. All these rules. I remember very vividly the you have to be on time for the class. And then... Relatively quickly, we got into the Cartesian demon hypothesis. Now, the Cartesian demon hypothesis is saying, look, how do you know you're not a brain in a tank wired up matrix style and everything that you think of as real and true is simply being fed into you by some external demon that's manipulating everything about you? Like even the sensations of your body and everything. You're just a brain in a tank with electrodes wired up that's simulating experience and reality for you. That's his basic question. And this is where I think, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, that's where it comes from. Okay, even if all that's true, I'm a brain and a tank being manipulated by an external demon. Everything I perceive is just a waking dream plugged into my brain. At least I am experiencing something. I am the entity being fooled. Even if everything I believe is a lie, I have been lied to. I exist. I am able to think that maybe I am deceived, or I am deceived, therefore I exist. Which, yes, I mean, that's pretty hard to... It uh, doesn't mean anybody else exists, of course, a bit narcissistic in that way, but at least you could be certain that you exist. Uh, if you're being fooled, right, if everything you're being told is a lie, at least someone, i.e. you, is being lied to and, and exists. Now, arguing against this is relatively simple which is why it hasn't really taken hold of people uh, much at all. Plus, it's an unsurvivable hypothesis, right? If you doubt everything, then you can't survive. So I, I really, 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 I can't tell you how much anger, rage, and contempt I have for philosophical arguments that are unsurvivable. Well, here's the truth. Oh, so if I accept the truth, I just die? Yes. <laughs> okay, good job, everyone. So philosophy is not supposed to serve man's survival at all but it's supposed to just oppose our entire capacity to survive in any way, shape, or form. Excellent. Great job. Philosophy should be medicine for error. And this is a medicine for error called decapitation. Well, you're not sick anymore. <laughs> well, I don't have any doubt anymore because I'm dead. So, <laughs> just I remember learning about this Cartesian demon hypothesis. And 
really feeling, I felt this wave. I still remember what the weather was like on the day that I was in that class. I just felt this wave of incipient insanity. Like somebody was trying to infect me with a brain virus that could drive me mad. I felt a very deep, strong immune system response to the invasion of a brain worm that could eat up my sanity. And I fought hard against it in the class. I was going to get my money's worth, man. I just spent a year and a half hard physical labor in order to survive and make money for university. I was going to get my money's worth. I wasn't going to sit there like a lump on a log and not argue. I fought hard with the guy. Do you believe it? It's a possibility. Really? Because you told us to be on time. To be at this location at this time. We can't be late. So you don't know if anything's real, but you know that we should be on time. What if I fail? What happens if I fail to turn in a paper? Well, you'll fail. Okay, so you don't know if I'm real, but you know that I should fail if I don't turn in a paper. You don't know that the paper's real, but you know that if you don't have it, you can fail me. Right? Because it just bothers the living hell out of me when people don't even remotely try to apply their own beliefs to their actual lives. If your belief can't survive its enactment, it's false. In general. If your belief can't survive its enactment, right? if you doubt the evidence of the senses, but you communicate to other people your doubt through the evidence of their senses, the senses are invalid, but you use the senses to communicate that, your, sen- your, your belief cannot survive its own enactment. I don't know if you exist, but I'm going to argue with you. Your belief that other people don't exist can't survive you arguing with them. Your belief cannot survive its own enactment. Boom, done. Self-detonating. Arguments. Easy, done and dusted. But that kind of certainty brings blowback and people are afraid of blowback and all that. So yeah, I remember having those those fights. I also remember the this is, you know, the elderly professor being rather dazed by this. Which I found both surprising and contemptible. If your very first day of karate instruction, karate class, there's some girl with a, some man or with a double black belt, ninth Dan ninja, whatever, right? And he says, come at me. And you, you're fairly untutored and unskilled, and you come at him and you beat him. The hell would you be learning from him? You just come up and you push him over and he falls over and cries. It's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be teaching me? And I'm an amateur and you can't handle my move? What are you... What? (laughs) It made, made no sense to me. Why would somebody... I mean, this guy was... He had to have been at least 80 you know, built like a question mark and shuffling slowly. And and I remember the TA had to walk near him in case he fell. And he, you know, he slow scratching, squeaking on the chalkboard. He wrote very slowly and 
right? So this is a guy who'd been studying philosophy for 60 plus years in my first philosophy class. You can't answer my questions? What the hell is going on in this discipline? What nonsense is this? Kung Fu is the way you survive street fights, <laughs> right? And then some guy who's been studying Kung Fu for decades just gets knocked over by a girl guide <laughs> who then steps on his face. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Oh, God. I had more respect for history, which is why I ended up branching out into history for some period of my higher education. At least there were some facts that were generally accepted. So the Cartesian demon, it's uh, pretty pretty simple uh, to, to overthrow. So uh, Occam's razor, right? The simplest explanation is usually the best. So if you've got a Cartesian demon, ah, Bob the demon is manipulating everything. So consciousness which exists might be being manipulated by other consciousness. Or you could say consciousness that exists is being manipulated by other consciousness. Okay, so Bob the demon is manipulating me, but Bob also has a consciousness, and therefore there'd be another Bob, there'd be another Dan the demon who'd be manipulating Bob. And there'd be Stan manipulating Dan, manipulating Bob, manipulating me, and this just goes on forever and ever. So if we're going to say consciousness that exists is being manipulated by external demons, that goes on forever. And each demon would require its own reality or pretend reality, and it would go on forever, but somewhere there must be a demon who's not being manipulated. There has to be a first cause for these things. How do we know that? Because in order to develop the scientific capacity to manipulate other people's consciousness, you would have to have studied science that exists in an objective and universal way within your own reality. And even the, like the brain in the vat that's being manipulated must exist in some objective universe. Like even the Matrix characters did exist in an objective universe. It's just that their subjective perceptions were being manipulated, but they did exist in an objective universe. So I exist in an objective universe being manipulated by another being who himself exists in an objective universe. But then that being may be manipulated by another being. Maybe there's another universe that, that comes through. So it's the infinite regression problem. Turtles all the way down. If all consciousness that exists is being manipulated by external consciousness, that just goes on forever. And maybe there are other realities or other universes and so on, right? And there's this daisy chain that goes on forever, except there must be some consciousness that is not being manipulated in order to develop the technology that manipulates all the other consciousnesses. And even if... It's just me and Bob. I'm the brain in the tank and Bob is manipulating me. Bob's consciousness is not being manipulated by someone else. The Bob is the manipulator. Right, so for the Cartesian demon hypothesis to work, there has to be a consciousness that is not being manipulated by an external consciousness, which is the demon manipulating me. Okay. So then we say... In order for the Cartesian demon hypothesis to work, there must be a consciousness that is not being manipulated by anyone or anything that has developed the scientific knowledge and ability and capacity to manipulate my consciousness. Okay, so now we're saying that there are consciousnesses that exist in a perfectly stable and universal scientific universe whose consciousnesses are not being manipulated. 
that is absolutely necessary for the hypothesis to work. Bob the demon, who's manipulating me, must exist in an objective universal reality with objective universal properties and behaviors of matter so that he can develop the technology to manipulate me. So we're saying, and, and Bob must also, the Bob the demon must use the evidence of his senses to build up scientific truths, and he must use the evidence of the senses to apply his, his um, electrodes to my brain or put my brain in the vat or, or tank or whatever it is, right? So here we have Bob exists in an objective universal universe where the behavior of matter and energy follows objective consistent laws and he has to trust the evidence of his senses in order to develop the capacity to manipulate me. So we don't need Bob at all because we've already admitted that consciousness exists in an objective universe with stable properties and behaviors of matter and energy and a trust in the evidence of the senses. That all has to be accepted. So we don't need Bob because exactly the same principles that you would apply to Bob apply to me. And if your hypothesis that consciousness is manipulated relies on consciousness that is not manipulated, then you've just falsified your own hypothesis. If your hypothesis requires that the senses be manipulated, and in order to be able to achieve that, you have a being called Bob whose senses are not being manipulated and are accurate and truthful about what goes on in the universe. In other words, if your hypothesis that you, sh- you, you must doubt your senses is based upon a sovereign consciousness that does not doubt its senses, then you just detonated your whole argument. You, you just created a whole unnecessary layer because Bob has exactly the same characteristics that every normal sane human being believes that he or she possesses. You haven't created a universe of illusion at all. <laughs> it's like saying that all consciousness are locked inside a cupboard. And I know that because Bob, who's outside the, cu- the cupboard, locked me in the cupboard. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If all, all consciousnesses are locked in cupboards, then Bob is not in the cupboard with you and locked you in the cupboard from outside the cupboard. So you have at least one consciousness called Bob that's outside the cupboard. Well, yeah, but we don't like to think of it that way. <laughs> it's crazy, right? You say all consciousness are inside, locked inside a cupboard. Well, who locked us in there? Well, the consciousness is outside the cupboard. Okay, so then not all consciousness are inside cupboards. <laughs> Done. Simple. Easy. If the opposite of your supposition is required for it to be true, I don't believe you. I just don't believe you. Also, Descartes, quite tragically, I mean, bad health his whole life and all that. A lot of sympathy for that. But Descartes was the first philosopher, and I've explained this very patiently to to my wife, of course, but uh, Descartes was the first philosopher who who was killed by getting up early. And listen, if you're a night owl like me, uh, I'm recording this in my peak productive hours, actually at 3.46 p.m., Monday the 10th of October. Hey, are you today? Because you're at 10 out of 10. You're 10 slash 10. So, yeah, if you need this, uh, you can, of course, put this forward. And you can say this is exactly why you can't get up early, because it's fatal to thinkers. 
1649, Queen Christina of Sweden summoned him to Stockholm to teach her philosophy. Now, the queen was one of these godforsaken evildoers who's called an early riser. And Descartes, of course, as we know, had a lifelong habit of sleeping late. So three times a week, she wanted him to teach her five o'clock in the morning. Five o'clock in the morning is barbaric. Although I like milk, so I'm glad people are up at five. So this undermined his health, getting up this early. And it was cold, Sweden. So he caught pneumonia and died on 11th of February, 1650. Now, of course, he was uh, buried in uh, uh, a non-holy grave because of his religious differences, and uh, 16 years after his death, Descartes' remains, except for his head and one finger, was conveyed from Stockholm to Paris. 1667, he was interred at the cemetery of the church of Saint-Genevieve-de-Mont, and then he was moved years later, still no head, no finger, and reburied at the Abbey of Saint-Germain-du-Pré. And his remains found peace eventually there. And there is still some argument about the location of his head. Some people say it's in a museum in Paris. I don't think anybody figured out where the finger was. We can only assume that he gave the finger to empiricism, and the demon took it. 